Hello, Max Moors. This is Max Moors Theater and Performance Podcast. I am Lindsay Behrens. I'm thrilled to bring you this week's episode, an interview with playwright and poet Dan O'Brien. Dan's play, The Body of an American, is currently playing at the Cherry Lane Theater in New York City. The play is a gorgeous, raw, but simple two-person exploration of Dan's nearly decade-long exchange of correspondence with Paul Watson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning war reporter. The play is about their friendship, Paul's life surviving war zones across the globe, and a photo he took of a fallen soldier in Somalia. He won a Pulitzer Prize for the photo, but the ghost of the soldier has haunted him ever since. I loved this play, and it was a thrill to talk to Dan about it. If you can't make it to Cherry Lane, Dan has three books of poetry, two related to Paul Watson, and one about growing up in Scarsdale, New York, which happens to be the subject of the play Dan is working on now. Usually I give out Twitter addresses at the end, but I'm going to do it up front because following Dan on Twitter is a pleasure, and I strongly recommend you do so. He is at Dan O'Brien Writer. That's D-A-N-O-B-R-I-E-N-W-R-I-T-E-R. I am at Lindsay Behrens, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. And Maxmoo is at Maxmoo, M-A-X-A-M-O-O. We'll post links to tickets for The Body of an American and to Dan's books on this episode's page at maxmoo.com. Enjoy the show. No crackers. Okay. No taffy. I've got some hard candies so that I can unwrap <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> yes, if, you're, if you want your cell phone to go off, if you want to engage in all yeah, yeah, exactly. theater behaviors. <laughs> yeah. So have you just gotten to town for yeah, your Pretty show? much. I, mean, I got here late Monday. Mm-hmm. Very late because of the weather, so it was it was delayed four or five hours. But yeah, it's been, and then I saw the show Tuesday night. I hadn't seen it since Hartford. Um, and in Hartford, I was there for like you know all of previews and everything, so I had a, a long experience um, with it. And I was here for the beginning of rehearsals because they rehearsed here in New York. Um, but yeah, I didn't see it in the Cherry Lane until Tuesday. Oh wow! So, yeah, and is it the same production that they did in mm-hmm. Hartford? Yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's been restaged somewhat just because Hartford, it, it was on a thrust stage and it was you know four hundred and fifty seats or something. So oh, that much bigger. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, it was still the same two chairs, platform, the same um, projection spaces, basically the same projections. I think, aside from adjusting the staging, they had to. Um, adjust a fair amount of the lighting just because it's, you know, at the Cherry Lane, it's a, it's a much smaller right. overall playing space. But the actors tell me it doesn't, it wasn't that traumatic for them in terms of the uh, restaging, which was good. Oh, that is good. Yeah, because we were nervous about that. Because often with a co-production, you hope that they're pretty similar spaces. Right. Whereas this, you know, at least on paper, looked like a very different um, space, which it is. But for whatever reason, it didn't end up, you know, maybe just because it's such a non-literal staging, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, it was really just about adjusting sight lines from the thrust to a proscenium. So, so usually I try to get to know the person a little bit and then talk about their production. Mm-hmm. But in this case, the show, you're actually in the show, you're mm-hmm. a character in the show. That's so, true. but I guess we can start there and still try to do that and. Mix the two parts of the conversation together. Great. So, where are you from? I grew up in Scarsdale, New York, in Westchester, so 20 miles north of Manhattan. Okay, so not far from here. No, no, yeah. And, like, typical middle-class family, or...? I, you know, um, it's... 
Scarsdale's a very, I don't know if, I mean, some people know Scarsdale because it used to be, I think it's less known uh, now, but it used to be kind of the quintessential bedroom community affluent suburb of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess now like maybe more Greenwich or Westport or, you know, um, Scarsdale still is incredibly expensive and everything. Um, So I've always felt a little strange about that because I often feel like I have to explain to people that I was like one of very few poor families in Scarsdale, which can also sound like I'm protesting too much or something because it still was a very affluent place to grow up, great schools, uh, you know, um, many of my friends had a lot of money, um, but my family didn't. My, my parents, uh, my mother is, was a housewife, six, I'm one of six kids, big Irish family in Scarsdale, which tends to be, you know, um, well, very Jewish, very waspy, you know, it's just a very moneyed, like, New York mm-hmm. suburb. Um, and my dad was a um, computer consultant, but worked for himself in the attic of our house, uh, neither of my parents went to college. They never came into the city. They were terrified of New York City, um, which, again, is very different. Most people in Scarsdale, their parents work in the city. You know, their parents are lawyers or doctors or hedge fund managers or, you know. How did they end up in Scarsdale? They they met at the Scarsdale, or they went to the Scarsdale Senior Prom, I believe was their first date. So they oh, wow. grew up there. My mother was originally from Long Island and moved to Scarsdale. Uh, her father was pretty wealthy, so they made some money and moved to Scarsdale. Whereas my father grew up in the town, almost in the town right next to Scarsdale, which sometimes we refer to as kids as the slums of Scarsdale (laughs) because it was just more middle class or lots of like Irish and Italian working class. So I I did feel like my family was culturally working class within Scarsdale, which is not working class, you know. But, you know, it was more complicated than that. I mean, the play I've been writing after the body of american is is entirely a memoir play and that, oh, that's really? yeah yeah because in the in the play there's that little moment where paul watson says well why don't you start asking questions mm-hmm. about your family because there's a memoir element in the body of american but it's not uh, developed too far and so this next play was it, i basically just tracked down estranged relatives and trying to figure out certain mysteries about what was wrong with my family i mean my family was um, depends on who you compare it to. Pretty dysfunctional. I mean, it's obviously many people have had much more dysfunctional uh, families and childhoods. But it was, you know, my parents were had lots of uh, secrets and were very, um, I think, very mentally ill. You know, and not being treated for it. Um, and one thing I found out. You know, I don't know if I can prove it, but I, I think my mother's father was largely supporting us sort of under the table mm. in Scarsdale. So my father didn't have much of a a career, which kind of makes sense because as a kid, I always wondered how, you know, how he supported us. Right. Because <laughs> he would sort of work in the attic of our home and he had, he definitely had clients, but, you know, he had six kids. We all went to college, um, you know, and... Uh, and I found out that my grandfather was secretly paying for that. Um, Is that the subject of your second book, which I've not your uh-huh. book of poetry right. that I've not read? I've I've read the first book, but not oh, the great. second. No, the the second one is uh, pretty pretty new. Is it um, was just published in the UK. It hasn't come out here yet. And that's uh, and they're both books of poems. And no, that that second book, you know, it kind of like the it's really a continuation of War Reporter, the first collection, and the second collection is called New Life. 
in that it's still about Paul Watson and me. Oh, okay. And then which one is called Scarsdale? That's right. There's one in the middle. So actually, I have three collections of poetry. There's one called Scarsdale. And that, yeah, that is, you know, it's, um, they're poems, but yeah, they're very autobiographical poems. And is the play you're working on now an adaptation of Scarsdale in the same way that you might consider mm-hmm. The Body of an American to be an adaptation of War Reporter, The Book of Poetry, or different? You know... I think there's there's obvious there's a lot of overlap because they're so autobiographical. <clears throat> Excuse me, but um, but the the book of poetry was sort of evolving for like ten or fifteen years, so it was a much more just sort of these autobiographical poems that 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 happened, and I would write them and work on them and send them out or whatever, you know. And then over time, the collection came together. Whereas the uh, play and the two collections of poems about Paul were much more. They've, they've, they've been much more almost chronological and, mm-hmm. and relatively recent, mm-hmm. you know. Both collections of, of, about Paul Watson still deal with, just like the play does, still deal with a certain amount of memoir, too. Right. Because part of what I, you know, fundamental to what I um, find um, meaningful about writing about Paul or with Paul to some degree, and we can talk about that because even though it's a collaboration, he's never read the poems or seen the play. Right. And never will. He's very sort of adamant about that. Um, but part of what drew me to writing about him was was um was the abusive childhood and the strange um childhood full of secrets and and ghosts and you know psychological hauntings my uh mother had a very traumatic childhood that you know we never really knew too much about and so it, you know just we felt like we grew up with her ghosts first of all mm-hmm. you know and then we sort of acquired our own i guess um too so, so the the memoir is in is in um, both, but the house in Scarsdale, that, that was that's the play. I have a bad habit of writing uh, in different genres about the same <laughs> about the same subject. I think it's a great habit. Oh, good. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, I I I find it really interesting because you can look at it from different angles, and it ends up changing. You know, writing the poems about Paul changed the play. Right. And then the play would then change the poems. And there's an, even an opera that I wrote the libretto for. I've seen that for. too. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Because I was um, at the prototype two years ago. Oh, right. So right. I saw it there. I didn't get to see it here. I saw the original. I mean, it wasn't. It was like a workshop production. Like, it wasn't like a full-blown production. At least at Stanford. They still had, like, scripts in hand for parts of it or something. I don't think they had scripts in hands here. I mean, it's a festival production. So right, it's right. not the same style that you would see if you were, you know, at the Met. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty fulsome. <clears throat> okay. I mean, they do a great job at the Prototype Festival yeah. with their production. I know. They're so successful. I mean, they've gotten so much attention in only four years. Three or four Three years or four old, years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're one of six kids. One of six, yeah. Where, where do you fall in the lineup? Uh, fourth. Oh, okay. So, so towards the younger end. Kind of in the middle. I mean, it was weird. Are you from, what's the size of your family? I'm one of five. You're one of five? Yeah. Oh, wow. And where are you? The oldest. See, that's because I'm sure you're thinking about, like, the archetypal... Yes, what role did you play yeah. in your family is my next and, question. And, and my <laughs> f- feeling or my interpretation of that was that for a long time I was the youngest of four. Mm. And that's probably <clears throat> probably the side of me that was interested in performance and theater and, uh, you know, a narcissist or whatever. And then... Uh, then for a long time, I was the oldest of three, if that makes sense. Just because of, we were spread out over 18 years. Oh, wow. So pretty big spread. And so for, you know, so for a long time, I was, the others were gone and out of the house. And I was kind of much older than my younger siblings. 
So I feel like I do have some older siblings, sibling elements mm-hmm. to my person. Are you sort of the quintess? Do you have yes, archetypal? I'm the worst oldest yeah, sibling. Yeah. The worst. And my parents got divorced when I was 13. So oh. it all was a disaster. But, so, um, but that means you're very responsible. Yes. Or type A sort of? Super. Overachiever? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would fit all those too, I think. But. Well, that's an interesting mix. Yeah. Because my sister, who's the fourth in our uh-huh. family, is also the artistic one. She's a dancer. She's a yoga Pilates instructor. Mm-hmm. So merging those two personalities, which I think of as kind of polar ends of the spectrum, right. Right. Um, would create a very interesting person. I wonder if, I mean, I, I, I've related it to being, because I used to act a little bit in school and but I didn't want to pursue that. And and part of it was, I thought was sort of my older sibling um, tendencies to control, mm-hmm. you know, which I think writers and directors and, you know, have, have that skill too. Right. So I, I've kind of related that element of it in some ways to, um, to being a writer as opposed to, this is probably going to offend actors, but I feel like actors can be, <laughs> and probably need to be able to lose themselves. Even when I did act, Directors would say, like, you know, we can, you're too in your head, you're too self-conscious, you're too aware, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love actors that can seem so in the present moment, in the present tense, you know. And how did you gain exposure to the arts when you were younger? I saw, like, the worst Broadway shows in the 80s. <laughs> A few of them. I saw, um, well, maybe this, this is probably offensive to, to fans of magic, but I think my first Broadway show was Doug Henning, live on Broadway. Okay, I don't know what that is. Yeah, he was huge in like the 70s and 80s. And partly it's because he, I think he died late 80s, early 90s of cancer. So he's still pretty young when he died. Mm. But for a while he was up, it was like Doug Henning and David Copperfield were like the two biggest magicians. Whereas now David Copperfield is still, you know, uh, he's David Copperfield. He made the statue. Yeah, he made the statue literally disappear. Um, Doug Henning was kind of like Gallagher. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that Gallagher? Oh, yeah. He had like really frizzy hair and... uh, if I remember correctly, either had a mustache or like a Fu Manchu. He would wear like um, lame bodysuits. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a very kind of 60s, 70s vibe to him. So he had a show that I remember seeing young. I remember he made a horse disappear hmm. or appear in a cage elevated off the stage. Um, and then I saw, you know, occasionally school trips. Like, you know, I remember seeing The Wind in the Willows, an ill-fated Broadway musical i think that that closed opening night or something you know so i didn't see good theater and partly that was because again my parents never they didn't work in this city they seemed part of whatever was and is uh you know whatever they suffer from part of it is a certain amount of um, agoraphobia you mm-hmm. know and the, i think the city was just so frightening to them you know? so you mostly came down on school trips yeah organized mm-hmm. trips to the city but it sparked your interest. Yeah. But I would say it was probably seeing, I mean, reading plays first. Mm-hmm. You know, my sister, I remember seven years older than me, she brought home um, Waiting for Godot from like a class in college. And I was like 12 at the and time. And you were super precocious, apparently. <laughs> I was, I mean, I, you know, I, was, I loved reading. And there was something about that play that... that um, I didn't understand. Of course, I don't know if you're, you know, meant to understand it. But right. at twelve, I was still like, "Oh, this is." I felt like this. I felt like this is my family in a weird way. Oh, like wow. there's something about the, the 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 sadness and the absurdity of it that felt a so Irish to me in mm-hmm. a certain way. 
an Irish American, uh, and ver- and just reminded me so much of some something mental or psychological about about um, my my childhood. And so I mean, that was the first play I read where I, I felt you know deeply moved and, and wanted to or thought about writing plays. And then, um, but it really wasn't until I got to college and started acting that I, that I went from thinking, oh, I'm going to be a poet or a novelist or something to thinking I you know I want to primarily write plays. And where was college? I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, which is a um, very small program but mm-hmm. uh, you know still is a great program in terms of the work. They do a lot of contemporary work, more political work. Did you go there to be a theater major or to I kind I sort of secretly knew I wanted to do that, <laughs> but my parents didn't want that. Um, you know, they'd given up by then that I would be some kind of science or math person. But they had, they had that idea that, you know, you, you, that you go to college to get um, a job. Is that what your older siblings did? They, they all, my older sister did have more of an artistic major in college. I think she was uh, like English and, and uh, visual art. Mm-hmm. Uh, my other, I come from a long line of like autistic um, science sciencey guys mm. so you know all of my brothers have done that and they're they're you know they majored in engineering or computer science or something um so i was kind of an outlier in that respect um and then they got more more regular jobs or my older brother my one older brother uh, got a he works for a bank you know mm-hmm. um so yeah so i did have to kind of finagle a major in English and theater. I did like a double major, which was great for me because it meant it was just, you know, um, creative writing workshops and acting in plays or directing plays. So I don't know if I got a good education <laughs> in, in a wider <laughs> sense, but I enjoyed it. And and um, and I really, you know, there was so much pre- pressure to place like Scarsdale High School to get good grades and go to like an Ivy League I think famously, at least when I went to school there, like 65% of students would go to an Ivy League college. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was like slumming it to go to Middlebury, you know. But um, so I wouldn't, I didn't like school in high school, which is common, I'm sure. But so, and my rebellion was like, you know, to get B pluses or something, you know, like to Uh not study, to not study for the SATs when everyone else was like taking like years of prep, you know. Um, But then I got to Middlebury and because... A, because I got away from my family and suddenly, you know, felt a lot better about life. Um, and also because I got to, to study what I wanted to study. Mm-hmm. I just, I really, um, it really changed my life in a lot of ways. And then I spent a year in Ireland right after college where I did see a lot of theater um, doing a, in the UK a little bit. This uh, fellowship called the, Th- uh, the Watson Fellowship, the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's been around since like '69, I think, and it was started by, um, I believe, the son of of the first Watson who started IBM. Oh. And the son had been kind of counterculture, a bit of like the black sheep of the family. So, the son, when he could, set up this um, fellowship for for people for the year after college, to kind of go have a, a wanderjahr, you know, sort of the year of wandering. Um, the, the, you have to propose something that's very personal uh-huh. that you um, that that you you know can envision pulling off independent study you're not supposed to enroll anywhere you go alone and you can't come home so like that's that's a f- foundational oh, wow. idea yeah so people go I mean so I had one of the more <clears throat> boring 
fellowships because I just went to Ireland to study, independently study theater and to write plays and to act if I could get roles, uh, which, which I did, you know, weird. I, I, within a week, I was joking with friends before I left that I wouldn't get to act unless, you know, I, they were doing like a David Mamet play, uh-huh. you know, in Cork. I was going to Cork City first, which is a smaller city in the south mm-hmm. of Ireland. And within a week, I was in casting Sexual Perversity in Chicago, an early David Mamet play, in Cork, in a pub theater in Cork City. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, which was a great experience. I had to, like, play what the Irish were going to view as a quintessentially American character, you know, in a quintessentially American play mm-hmm. in Cork City. I remember the director at the time, at the director of this production was obsessed with the idea that Cork in 1996 was like, um, you know, Chicago in, I'm not sure when, it was one of his first plays. But he was obsessed with the idea that, you know, it was was a similar time. I think divorce had just been ratified in Ireland. Hmm. Um, You know, abortion is still illegal. So it was interesting to do a play that, that maybe was somewhat dated in the U.S. at a time in Ireland when it was probably a bit shocking for people. And what types of things were you writing then? I was writing, I ended up writing just a lot of poetry because I was, I was moving around so much. It was hard to, you know, it was hard to write a longer, to, to sustain sort of a, a longer vision on like a longer play or something. And also I was meant to write about being in Ireland and it was, you know, it was, it was hard to write about it during the experience. So I did write something that kind of went nowhere, you know, in theory, in theory, I was writing a play about a historical figure, so it was going to be a historical. You know, being 22, I, I think I proposed it as like a cycle of plays you know, <laughs> that I'll write in the next 12 months, you know, and ended up with like 40 weird pages at the end of it. But I wrote, but I wrote a lot of poetry, and it, but and it ended up as an experience, you know, being hugely, um, just hugely formative, you know, to have. How so? Well, just to be. I'd never traveled before, again, coming from a family of, of agoraphobes, mm-hmm. to be alone in a foreign country uh, was terrifying, but also exhilarating, you know? And um, uh, and also because because Irish writing and my Irish identity meant so much to me. Mm-hmm. Much of it uh, being an imagined identity, you know, with this new memoir play I did more genealogical research and like most Americans you know found out what a mix of cultures and genealogy and lineages I am you know yeah and I'm much less Irish than I thought I was 20 years ago yeah yeah um and actually much more uh English and and Scottish which again in the grand scheme of things is probably pretty close culturally um but so it was really meaningful just in terms of getting to know that culture but I think again also just you know having having that experience of being completely alone in a foreign place. And I th- like if I did that now, it would be scary. But, you know, I, I, a year when you're 42 is not this, you know, 22, it's like that could be the rest. You're leaving home. You know, I thought maybe I'll move to Ireland and stay there. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe. It, so it, it had so much more um, power, you know. And it was also, it was a year when I could pretend I was a writer, too. Do you know what I mean? Where yeah. I could... did, did you, um, at that point in your life, think, I'm going to be a writer? That's what mm-hmm. I'm going to do? That's what I, wa- <clears throat> what I wanted to, to do. I mean, you know, I was one of those annoying kids, which is maybe very common to writers or artists, but I, you know, I wanted to be a writer from very young. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, Where did the... you get that idea from? 
Um, you know, I, I got it from, I, I did get it from my mother to some degree. I mean, she was always saying, you know, they said that, you know, I was, as a young kid, just hearing that I was good at it, I'm sure mm-hmm. made a, a, a big uh, impact. You know, just, uh, I mean, from very young, I just, I just, you know, I would make little, well, now I'm trying to think, where, when did it start? Um, I did have, and this is part of growing up in Scarsdale, I had two years, third and fourth grade, where every afternoon I was in an experimental class where all we did was write stories. Really? Yeah. So from one o'clock to three o'clock, we would, and then we would work, we would sit at a little table, little chairs, and we would workshop each other's short stories. Wow. Yeah. And we would revise, and, and the teacher was, and the whole theory was, you know, it's not like, let's turn these 10-year-old, 11-year-olds into into writers, but the idea was to, to cultivate a creativity and, uh-huh. and also language skills, you know. Um, and, but I mean, God, now looking back on that, that must have been huge. Sure. You know? That said, like, what weren't we learning for those two hours every day? You know, my geography skills are probably uh, abysmal. Um, and were you writing poetry and plays, or was it more fiction, or all of the above? It was, uh, uh, when I was that young, it was probably stories, yeah. mostly short stories. And, and how did you veer towards poetry and playwriting? Poetry started, these are great questions, but I feel like I'm being incredibly self-indulgent and narcissistic. So that when, when someone invites you to talk about yourself yeah, on I'm a like, podcast, well, let me, that's kind of the point. Okay, all right. <laughs> let me tell you more about um, The poetry really began when uh, my family got even more sort of um, obviously screwed up or mm-hmm. obviously dysfunctional. Um, you know, it's something that's in the play in the body of an American when I was a 12 and my brother was 17 and he got very depressed and we didn't understand. I didn't understand what was going on. And then he tried to kill himself. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, an event that I sort of witnessed. I, I, he, he, uh, tr- threw himself out the window of our house, of the, the attic of our house. And I, saw him just after he had done it sort of coming around the side of the house and um when I was younger I probably thought of that as like that event as what happened to our family and now I I understand it in a broader context that it was like oh no that was like an example of what was wrong Mm -hmm. with our family because it wasn't just you know that that happened it was also then it became all about denial and secrecy and he he didn't he wasn't given any therapy or help was he the oldest he was not he was the second oldest he was the oldest boy but he Mm -hmm. was the uh, second oldest in the family um and it was it was around that time that I started uh writing poetry for sure and it was it was much more um it it was very much as opposed to the short stories when I was younger probably just being about telling a fun story and hoping people like it this was much more uh adult in a certain way because it was an attempt to 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 understand my emotions and to communicate it to communicate it to myself because it was still a very secret thing i mean at 12 i didn't think i was gonna show it to anyone Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean it was just a way to um to speak about it because again i mean you know i wasn't given any sort of way to process and understand what was happening to my family and again it, you know what was wrong with the family wasn't just that event I mean my, my parents and other siblings were having emotional and psychological problems and nobody was dealing with it or understanding like the it. 70s and 80s when yeah. those things were talked about I mean yeah. I don't know that they're talked about today but there's more prevalence of like 
people seeking help for that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And yeah, a was, lot of medications available to right. assist. Yeah, this was pre, I think just barely pre-Prozac. So, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, we forget how, I mean, there's still tons of stigma, but it was even more then. But it was also even more so, I think, with my family. I mean, I think, you know, because my mother had such a traumatic childhood herself that it was so it was so unbearable to her, I think, the idea of her own family being screwed up. You know, her she she had a, a schizophrenic brother who mm. was um, sort of shipped off to Canada, and no nobody talked about him. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> so that's a whole other story. So there's something I think about seeing one of her sons. My brother's not schizophrenic, but you know, uh, serious depression and other sort of uh, personality and emotional disorders. You know, I think it was just it was just too much for her to handle. And again, my father. You know, is probably borderline autistic and and also just not a nice person. Mm. <laughs> he's a very, um, uh, you know, he's a very emotionally and verbally abusive person to to my mother and to my siblings and to me. Um, so you know, the, what was happening with my brother again was just kind of like an eruption of. Um, of the disease in the family, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. You know? And that triggered your method for processing all of that was to write about it, to write about to write yeah. poetry and other things. Yeah. I mean, and that's still fundamental to how I feel about writing and art, you know, not so much self-therapy, but although I do think um, that's a huge part of it. You know, I th it's kind of, I guess, a romantic idea, but that we're trying to heal, artists are trying to heal themselves. And, if people can relate to it, that they get a vicarious feeling or a vicarious processing of similar emotions that they can identify with. And um, so, you know, that does mean that to some degree, I imagine most artists uh, have wounds that they're trying to, to process or trying to heal. Well, I think you more so explicitly in your work, right? I think it's, yeah. it's not common for playwrights to write a play where they are one of the characters explicitly with the right. name and saying yeah. words that you've said, presumably in real life, mm -hmm. recounting conversations and encounters that you've had. Um, did you, why did you make yourself a character in that play? Hmm. You know, I, when I, it, when it first occurred to me, I didn't, um, I didn't want to in a certain way because I feared it could be self-indulgence, mm -hmm. that it could be like, solo shows that I've seen that feel self-indulgent or you know yeah we've all been there <laughs> right right so there you know there's that cliche of, of that at the same time you know I'd been writing plays for at, at that time maybe 12 13 years and that that where I was always you know trying to work through things I was going through in my life but wearing the mask of different characters and I was kind of for a variety of reasons sick of that so you know there was something that started to feel for me dishonest about that mm -hmm. you know and I sort of felt like well let's just just be honest like let's just let, let me just tell this story I mean I I related I I relate to it um maybe more in terms of like gonzo journalism or something mm -hmm. where the journalist you know, isn't the focus of the story, but allows him or herself to be a character. Kind of like Serial, mm -hmm. the yeah, podcast. exactly. Where the journalist's journey reporting the story is as much the thing being portrayed as the story itself. Right, right. 
And do you think... Well, I, we should probably back up half a second and say sure. that the play we're talking about is The War Reporter. The, the play no, is no, about it, sorry. Yeah. I'm mixing no, up No, this is my fault for having so many <laughs> similar... Uh, War Reporter is... The War Reporter is the opera. Yep. War Reporter is the poetry collection, the first one. Yep. And the play is called The Body of an American. Yes. Yep. And it is about... Well, why don't you explain what it's about? It's, I mean, it's about, uh, you know, it's the story of me getting to know Paul Watson, who's mm-hmm. a Pulitzer Prize winning war reporter. Um, it's at the, simultaneously the story of the uh, photograph he took in 1993, the one the Pulitzer Prize in 94, um, of a soldier, American soldier being desecrated, a dead American soldier being desecrated in the streets of Mogadishu. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was a famous, you know, photograph. It was all over, you know, magazines and newspapers. But when he took the picture, right before he took it, he heard a voice that he claims, that he believes, is the was and is the spirit of that soldier, saying, mm-hmm. "If you do this, I will own you forever." And uh, so the play sort of attempts to um, tell that ghost story too, that psychological ghost story, sort of how Paul has lived with that ghost and made sense of that ghost and uh, maybe in some ways healed or moved on from it. Um, no, he still, you know, he still struggles with serious PTSD and specifically still struggles with, with the uh, memory of that event and that experience and specifically still thinks he's being haunted, you know. Uh, you know, he comes to, he'll, he'll, be, he'll be here this weekend to do a couple of events with primary stages and he was in Hartford, and um, he's come to other productions of the play. And he never sees the play again because right. he's too uh, would be too disturbed by it. But he that feels, I actually get. I find yeah. you're sitting through the play repeatedly yeah. to be more yeah. startling. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's I mean in a much obviously much more minor way. It is similarly difficult to sit through it, you know, especially the memoir moments. Not so much because it's like oh, there's somebody playing me. Uh, because actually that in some ways I joke about it. in some ways that's easier because you know I, I've gotten to control the character to a certain degree even though uh-huh. it's all derived from recordings and things we've written to each other I still have had years to sort of get used to what I'm portraying about myself so that has a you know I'm c- kind of used to that and if you have a great actor you have somebody who's younger better you're better looking <laughs> you know uh, who's an actor who's charismatic so in some ways that's that's fine but yeah the the stuff that's like very personal about my childhood that's in the play you know I'm so used to those stories in a certain sense but when I see it with an audience it can be uh, surprisingly draining I don't know why it's surprising maybe but you're doubling down and you're going deeper into your own story with the next play you're working on yeah 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 which is uh, has been terrifying it hasn't been produced yet and you know every time we just did a reading of it actually at Center Theater, theater Group in L.A. And, um, yeah, it is pretty draining. Um, and I do, you know, I do worry that it's too self-indulgent, that people don't care. I mean, you know, it, it is that cliche, you know, that if you write as specifically and personally as possible, in theory, actually more people are going to identify with it. Um, and at least with readings and workshops, I had been moved to see people, you know, easily projecting their own family stories and childhood um, into the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had hoped with the newer play, I'd hoped that it would almost have a sense of a fantasy for some people, you know, be- because, well, I should say, 10 years ago, basically, my, my before I started writing so personally, my family essentially disowned me. They didn't use that language. 
but they just um, stopped talking to me. All of them? Uh, I'm st- Well, it's complicated because some of my siblings were already estranged mm-hmm. from the family, and I'm sort of in touch with some of them, but very loosely, like an email once a year or something. Uh, I'm, I'm closest with my youngest, my younger brother, but uh, and we get along, but we don't see each other much or, or talk or anything. In some ways, it's like I think we all feel like we survived a, a cult or something, and it's like even if even if we do get along, it's like it's it's a lot to if we see each other, we think about the past and we think about traumatic memories. Mm-hmm. So, um, but no, I would say um, half of my siblings I haven't talked to in ten years. Uh, my parents haven't talked to in ten years, um, and. But what that did do was it freed me up in a certain way that I, it was traumatic. And, uh, but it freed me up in some ways to write about them in a way that I couldn't have done, done before, you know. Right. It gave me you perspective. You feel like you have to protect their feelings so much. That's part of it, yeah. There was, at their choice, right. a triggering. Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, even that's still complicated. And the play tries to deal with that to some degree, too, because I don't want to... You know, my, my goal has never been to um, expose secrets in, like, a punitive way, mm-hmm. you know. At the same time, it feels important to me personally and artistically to, to try to tell these stories. Um, you know, I'm for better or for worse, I feel like I've been good at following my gut throughout my career about things that I just need to write yeah. for myself. Yeah. How did you learn to trust your gut? You know, again, it's it's. I say for better or for worse, because in some ways it's a liability. Like mm-hmm. I would like to. It's, I've, there have been periods in my career in my life where I've wanted to write what I think I should write. You know, for my career in some way, or I don't write for TV or film in large part for that for this reason because mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm just not good. I'm not good at writing stories that I don't feel very personal about. You know. So even if it's not a confessional autobiographical piece, it still needs to feel like a very personal story. So part of it is probably being stubborn, <laughs> trial and error, having tried to write things for hire and, and having a bad experience with that. Um, you know, some friends of mine who are writers will flatter me and say, oh, it's, you know, it's, you're so principled, you only write what you want to write. And I truly feel like I, you know, it just is what it is. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, and and that means I've written many things that nobody wants to produce or yet and maybe ever or publish or whatever. And, um, you know, right now I've been working on a memoir, a prose memoir that, you know, nobody's asked for, nobody may want. <laughs> I've got three play commissions that I should write right now and I'm sort of writing them, but I'm just trusting that the thing that's most um, unconscious and for me, that connects to being 12 again and writing poems. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was almost, a, it was a very unconscious experience for me as a kid to write. Uh, it almost would scare me, you know, as a kid to mm-hmm. write and see what was coming out and it would feel more like channeling or something, you know, and was probably just letting my unconscious, uh, you know, speak. Um, and that's still how I think about writing. It has to be something that's so, uh, half conscious for me you know so if somebody's hired me to like write a screenplay which has happened it's uh it's not it's not fun it's not interesting it's not inspiring to me even if i say to myself that would be a great film i'd love to see it yeah or i'd love to watch that tv show but i wouldn't uh be good at it you know so 
Do you believe in ghosts? Yes, I do. Yeah, I definitely do. Do you believe in God? Uh, I mean, I'm probably um, agnostic about both. Uh-huh ghosts and God. I talk to Paul Watson about this all the time because he'll say, you know, he's an atheist, but he believes that he's being haunted right. by the spirit. And of course, I mean, I've spent years and years being obsessed with uh, and writing about the quote unquote occult and mm-hmm. ghost stories, and, you know, um, and, and, and being obsessed with it on a psychological level. And many people will say, you know, you don't need a God to believe in ghosts. Right. There can be some kind of other thing going on. Um and and truthfully, you know, um, probably the atheists are right, and probably there's no such thing as a spirit world, and it's all a kind of mental. It's just the way our brains have developed in an adaptive way. Um, but uh, but I do. I mean, I've def- there's a, you know there's a reference in the play, The Body of an American, to the morning of nine eleven, waking up and seeing somebody in 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 uh, my wife my then girlfriend's bedroom she lived near the the, um, world trade center Mm -hmm. and uh you know it was was just kind of like a vision but i was definitely awake but it was waking up and there's a term for that i think it's called a hypnagogic or gogic Hmm. hallucination um so there is an explanation for that i guess but that doesn't happen to me quite often so the idea that i woke up before i knew anything that was going on and saw would look like a man in a suit with a, you know, bag or briefcase, like a, going to work, who was covered in dust and looked very kind of confused. That's weird to me. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of odd and meaningful. Had you seen ghosts before that? Uh, no, not not in any. Uh, I'm very envious of people that have. Do you know what I mean? That have like unambiguous either ghost stories. You know, because again, because I love people that believe strange things like I'm also obsessed with the new play I'm writing is a musical about Sasquatch actually oh, really? yeah and uh it's, uh, it's gonna be a weird dark um more of like a chamber rock opera or something but I'll be you know walking taking a walk with my wife and I'll say like wouldn't it be great if we just saw like if we saw a Sasquatch right now would that just be fantastic you know and she'll always say, like, no, that would be horrible. <laughs> that would be really scary. It would be scary. And then, like, we would not be able to tell anyone, or if we did, everyone would think we were insane. Um, and I get that, too. But, you know, I would love, you know, I would love to have a more unambiguous experience of, of I mean, my theory, which is not an original theory, is that ghost stories are um, immensely comforting to mm-hmm. people. Because it suggests, just like religion is, it suggests that there's something else going on. You know, not just that there's an afterlife of some sort, but it suggests that there's there's, there's some there's potentially um, some bigger picture that even if we don't understand could somehow make sense out of what is probably just chaotic and you know meaning maybe mm-hmm. you know there is no such thing as meaning other than what we've what we imagine and believe. So I, d- I had one ghost, if I can indulge you with oh, a ghost please. story, uh, where. Um, that I, I'm seeing if, I'm wondering if I have the sound file. It's because I recorded it. I, I had a residency in uh, Bellagio, Italy, on Lake Como. Uh-huh. At, at this, I think it's like a 14th century villa. Beautiful. The Rockefeller Foundation owns this villa high above Lake Como. It's like really dramatic. It's a 
great place if you're a writer or an artist or an academic apply because it's a it's I mean yeah it sounds it's a great experience yeah <laughs> and you can bring your partner it's not one of those places where you can't bring family or, or partner um, but I was there alone and in my room not every night but many nights I would wake up hearing the next room over hearing heavy furniture being moved around and so probably the first couple nights I assumed somebody was moving stuff around. And then I quickly realized that the room next to me was not a room that anyone stayed in. It was actually the library of the villa. But it had been the bedroom of this, I think they called her the princess. You know, this was the last private owner of this villa. Uh-huh. Um, so it had been her bedroom. And uh, and of course, I should say the first couple of nights this happened, I, I went outside and I checked and, you know, nothing had been moved around. There's no one in there. And often I would go. I would go into the library, and I wouldn't hear anything. I go back into my room, and I would hear it again. And I recorded it, and it sounded like heavy furniture just being pushed across a wooden floor. And um, I asked the caretaker one night at dinner because we have meals together. I said, you know, there've got to be ghost stories about this old. Mm-hmm. And there's amazing art there, like medieval, you know, religious art. So it, it was kind of spooky. And she was like, No, no, no. There's nothing. You know, nothing to. Um, uh, that I can think of. And then, like, at the end of the meal, she said, oh, you know, I did just remember one. And she says, and it has to do with the room you're staying in. <laughs> she said, there have been people who've stayed in room, I think it was in room one or something, you know, uh, who have heard furniture being moved around in in the princess's bedroom in the, the library. So, I mean, you know, that that that's as far as I've gotten in the sense that I have a recording of it and you can hear. Now, it's probably just some weird, like, you know, oral hallucination, you know, in the house, not hallucination, but, you know, the way um, the acoustics bounce around or something. Uh, Who knows? But it was definitely one of the few times where I was wide awake and I had no explanation for it. And, um, but again, I'm equally fascinated by the need or the urge to believe in things. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm, from an academic sense? No, from just a personal and an artistic sense, mm. you know. And even that's for a lot of just very personal reasons. I think it's because my parents were so crazy. And were they religious? No, no. I mean, my, my dad was raised Catholic, but he didn't practice. We weren't really raised anything, mm. uh, which might be in some ways where the interest in the weird beliefs come from mm-hmm. because I don't have a dogmatic sort of, you know. Um, th- they probably had some kind of weird occulty beliefs but they they you know nothing, I mean my father claimed that he had like some ESP tendencies and you know um so that was there but no it was more that I, I I think because they were so um strange and because of all the denial and secrecy you know in a way I was living with people who believed weird things they mm-hmm. believed in stuff that, that weren't there that weren't seen you know, for example, the fact that we were pretending that my father was supporting six kids. Yeah. That was, that's a belief system, you know, which is also like theater, too. It was a performance, you know, mm-hmm. but, but what was the truth? You know, so, and again, I don't think, I think a lot of what was uh, dishonest about them, I don't think they even knew it was dishonest. So again, that makes me think of belief and faith. Oh, sure, and denial. And denial, right. Be- yeah, because faith and denial. It's a- Media combination. Well, yeah, I mean, isn't that sort of the basic Freudian idea about religion, that it's just a huge it's denial of death, mm-hmm. you know? It's just that the reality is too much. 
So we can't help but believe in something that we feel is true, which is probably delusional, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or imaginative, creative. So I, I love all of that, um, all of that stuff for very personal reasons, I, I think. So. so what were you working on before you started working with Paul Watson? I mean, I'd written a, a fair number of plays that were, um, you know, I guess you would call historical dramas or some, a few of them were comedies or they had elements of both, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to write a few things that were more autobiographical at the same time, but it was much more difficult for me to do. And I think, um, you know, so I wasn't uh, sort of edging towards writing something more more honest, I think. And again, in the history plays, it was I was still trying to tell it honest story Mm -hmm. but with you know a safer move Mm -hmm. of history you know um so the specific play that i was writing was a ghost story it was about the founders of modern spiritualism which is which is a religion still Mm -hmm. um and it's uh you know they it's you know table tilting table rapping knocking you know communicating seances essentially Hmm. what became the victorian seance and, you know, that's been around forever, but modern spiritualism traces its origin back to two sisters, excuse me, in um, western New York, the Fox sisters, Maggie and, and Katie Fox, if I'm remembering their names right, mm. uh, who lived outside Rochester, like maybe an hour, 45 minutes from Rochester, New York. Very poor family, lived in a little shack, and they claims that the spirit of a murdered peddler or traveling salesman was buried in their basement and was communicating with them through rapping or knocking sounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, and these two are really revered, and their sister, their older sister, then got involved as a kind of Svengali figure who sort of, um, in some way, was their manager and maybe the brains behind the whole thing. Um, so I was writing about, I mean, their story to me is fascinating in the long term uh, because they, they had a, they were very young when this started. I think they were 12 and 14. Wow. Yeah. Their older sister was like, you know, in her 20s or something. Hmm. Um, but they went from a very tiny house in Hydesville, New York, to, um, you know, kind of, you know, being celebrities essentially in Manhattan and then in touring around the country. So it also got sort of wrapped up, of course, with, with showbiz as you know, any sort of psychic, you know, psychic TV shows are still right. big business, you know. Um and then, uh, so yeah, so I was writing, I was writing that play, and there's some references to, uh, you know, in in the body of an American, there are references to how I was working on a play about historical ghosts. Right. You know? So I think thematically and sort of energetically, if that's the right a word, um, you know, I was still I was writing about the sorts of things I'm still writing about, but it's just it's just become both more personal and then also I hope by working with Paul and a few other people that I'm starting to, to work with um, more engaged with uh, other people and with the present tense and with, with some actual events and politics and you know so I'm not very interested in hist- history plays right now and I'm afraid I know you've told the story several times but yeah. uh, how did you become familiar with Paul Watson I'm somewhat embarrassed of it because it's so kind of prosaic, but I just heard him on the radio. Yep. He was on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and the first scene of the play, um, you know, acknowledges that. It's sort of, 
it, it starts, it, it's structured around that interview, and then we're meant to sort of go into Paul's mind and into his memory, and, and, and it, you know, becomes more about that day that he took the picture, the one mm-hmm. the Pulitzer Prize. Um, but yeah, I just heard the interview, and was, it was really, and, and again, it sounds a little corny, but I, I felt haunted by his story of being haunted. It felt... Um, weirdly he's he seemed and felt weirdly familiar um for reasons that i've sort of figured out but at the time i didn't know why what are those well i mean it's in the it's in the play to some degree you know i I recognized after a while that i was drawn to him because of how damaged he was Uh do you know what i mean and how that on some deep level was how i always did and still do relate to my family uh wanting to on one hand, identifying with them, you know, with my brother, for example, we, you know, we couldn't have been more different as kids in a lot of ways. And partly that was because as a kid, I was probably trying to be as different as I could be, mm-hmm. you know, because he was depressive and he was the dark secret in my family. And so I had to be popular and sociable and, um, maybe like an older child I had to achieve and, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, but subtextually or, or you know privately I was of course always uh worried that I was very much like him that I could you know succumb to depression or any number of um mental disorders it's just a luck of the draw that really I'm much more, my problem is anxiety mm-hmm. and of course anxiety and depression are kind of two sides of the same coin mm-hmm. anyway um but so you know with with Paul you know in the play the Dan character recognizes in the Arctic, which is when I finally met Paul, you know, recognizes how much Paul reminds him of, of his brother, which is, which is true, you know, for me, uh, for sure. Um, and again, sometimes he just reminds me of me. I mean, there are lots of things, uh, you know, that he does as a war reporter, which I think are very similar, but also very different from what an artist does. Mm -hmm. So, um, that was fascinating to me for sure. But, uh, you know, I've always felt with my writing that I wanted to somehow uh, fix my family, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which is probably ironic to say now because to the degree that they're aware of my writing, you know, they don't like <laughs> that I'm writing about my family and about my childhood. Um, but the impulse or the urge has always been to... Uh, you know, with, with, by finding truth, truth and beauty to somehow elevate or transcend, you know, something chaotic, mm-hmm. messy, uncontrollable, sad, you know, finding a way to, to um, you know, even setting, because the play is set in a syllabic verse, you know, mm-hmm. every line of the play is 10 syllables. And, you know, part of that is just also what line breaks and everything does to language, um, but and how it's helped me and not so much about the audience being aware of it being poetic but you know even that translation of you know Paul's experiences um, into verse is about transcending Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean or about fixing or improving or um, make finding meaning or you know finding meaning in because like you know for example some of the things that Paul has lived through or severe depression like mm-hmm. with my brother there's nothing good about that it's right. just sad right. or it's out or it's or if, you know, in the case of a lot of you know combat and wars it's just outrageous or it's uh, infuriating um, 
then the question becomes, what do you do with it? You mm-hmm. know, what do you, how do you find some meaning in it? How do you, and, and without being some sort of Pollyanna or, right. you know, um, it's hard for me to imagine war disappearing. You know, I think, uh, it's, whereas, you know, Paul Watson talks often about how, you know, if we could all sort of come to terms with our own inner conflicts uh, and awaken greater empathy, that war truly could disappear one day, which to me sounds great, but it's hard for me to believe. I'm, sure. too, I'm too fatalistic or, or pessimistic or whatever. Um, so art at least becomes a way to maybe feel some control, maybe uh-huh. find some, some beauty, again, as long as it's trying to tell the truth and not... When you first reached out to him after you had heard the interview on the radio, what did you think would develop from that communication? I, I did suggest, you know, that I wanted to write about him. Oh, so you instantly thought that would be interesting. I did, and part of it was because I, I didn't think I could just email him and say, like, hey, I want to talk about, you know, my life my and your life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, you know, ostensibly it was still a pitch of, but it was a very soft pitch in the sense of like, I don't know what I would write. I don't know how I would write about it because I'd never written about that sort of thing before. I'd never written with somebody that closely. Did you have a pre-existing interest in the journalism element or the war element, or was it really just the haunted ghost element that... Yeah. spoke to you yeah it was really trauma writing about trauma for mm-hmm. sure and uh and relating that to ghosts for sure uh, you know um was probably the most i mean i i'd long f- felt the the desire to write something that would be considered more political mm-hmm. but i'd often felt like i would have been um kind of full of shit to do it because because I'm not a war reporter right because I have trouble with political activism personally because I'm so pessimistic fatalistic uh you know reclusive in some ways so you know I've always so I did feel that urge to write about the sorts of things that Paul writes about while at the same time feeling like I couldn't that I wasn't good at that that I wouldn't either maybe feel also feeling intimidated by that Mm -hmm. type of engaged writing um, when you look back, are you surprised at your audacity? To get in touch with him mm-hmm. or to... I mean, not really in the sense that, like, you know, he could just he could have just ignored it. And he ta- he's, when we've done talks together, he, he claims that he uh, ignores people all the time. Right. You know, <laughs> as I'm sure a lot of journalists have to because... Um, and for some reason, he feels a kind of spooky, you know, spooky serendipity that we both feel you know, why he felt compelled to respond to me and enter into this, you know, we were pen pals for two and a half years Mm -hmm. before we met. Uh, You know, I didn't start really writing the play for about two and a half years. So, so even though I'm not, I'm not surprised at the audacity of emailing him, it still did take me a long time to um, acclimatize to his world. Do you know what I mean? And to feel comfortable writing in his voice or with his language. Um, was that about feeling that you were equals and that you had the authority to speak with his voice or was there some other thing? I think so. I mean, I think it was familiarity too, just getting more and more familiar with, with my 
who I think he is, which again mm-hmm. I know is just, is a character and is a, is um, it's been interesting to talk to actors who play him to say like don't actually research him too much, right? Because I wrote a lot of this before I ever met him. Uh-huh. So Paul Watson is, you know, the character is very much some amalgamation of Dan O'Brien, the writer's, you know, perspective mm-hmm. on him, as well as me projecting my own psychology onto him. You know, both characters in The Body of an American, you know, are very anxious people who vibrate at a high level. Because mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. Whereas Paul, I mean, he's, he's got PTSD, so, but he doesn't come across as a very anxious or even manic person, for example. So if you listen to Paul Watson on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, yeah. he sounds very measured. He speaks in a you know in a very calm way. Well, in part because he's recounting something that's so traumatic. Mm-hmm. Not just that one experience where I took the picture, but other experiences in mm-hmm. war zones. And also yeah. there are parts of the your poems and parts of the play that recount him being in other Right. locations and seeing traumatic things there as well including right. having friends die and being injured himself and right. so i just imagine that if you are a person who has witnessed those extremes that you have to take yourself to a very kind of like zen place to recount them to another right. person yeah otherwise how could you cope right yeah i think i think you're right and i think you know it's it's also part of the ptsd mm-hmm. in a similar sense of of um, uh, partitioning or compartmentalizing mm-hmm. certain memories. So if you do talk about it, I mean, he'll often if you if you, if you come to any of the talkbacks or anything, he'll um, you know, he'll, it's very he, he often does break down when he's talking about Mogadishu, you know, and does so in a kind of PTSD way, which is a little different than you know somebody who doesn't have PTSD getting emotional, and that you know it often does feel like. He just goes someplace else and isn't even aware. You and know, how do you manage that being a friend and also a writer? And he refers to you in the play as his confessor. Mm-hmm. What? How do you manage those situations? You know, I've gotten, um, I feel like I've gotten just kind of used to it, relatively used to it. So when it happens, I, I don't think I feel... I think, I, uh, you know, I, when he's giving these talks, I can see the audience suddenly. I mean, it's a fascinating thing. It becomes a weird piece of theater mm-hmm. because he's talking about these traumatic events and then it's happening to him, you know. So I think people feel uncomfortable, but then people also feel great compassion for sure. him. And uh, and it's, so it can be a tricky thing in that way, but maybe it's just because I know it's often coming. I mean, the second collection of poetry is about, did I already say this, about mostly about Syria, Paul's time in Syria, and our attempts to sell a TV show based on that. Oh, okay. So, and that's kind of a dark comedy <laughs> aspect of it. <laughs> but it, so, something that was fascinating was to, and that this he was much more involved with because he wanted he had a fantasy a year or two ago, of getting out of war reporting and into TV writing. Mm. And I was the closest thing he knew to to Hollywood, which is laughable because <laughs> I don't write for TV. But I, you know, I did have somebody who you could live in LA. Yeah, and my wife writes for TV and acts, you know, sure. on TV. So, um, but it was a surreal, sometimes comical, sometimes horribly sad, you know, experience to, you know, pitch the show and go into HBO or Showtime or you know FX and and Paul would sometimes, you know, be be visibly stricken or haunted by some of the stories he was telling. While at the same time knowing that he needed to do this in order to sell it 
Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and it was and, and feeling queasy about that. While at the same time, we were trying to pitch a show that would be um, quite admirable, which is probably why no one bought it yeah, <laughs> because it wasn't true. it wasn't like vampires in in Syria or zombies or whatever. You know, it was it was <laughs> it was maybe too sort of sober. And I mean, we were kind of pitching it very much like The Wire or something. You know, which. I'm sure everybody... It might just be too soon. It might be. A couple of years from now, that might be. might be a very appealing pitch. Yeah. I mean, it was still... It would have been... I mean, there were fascinating meetings. And he was very... It was, it was somewhat heartbreaking because he was... In the new collection, there's a poem based on our only fight he and I have had. Because he was very nervous about the pitches, uh-huh. as anybody would be. But it was turning into like him being very um, aggressive in his critique of how I was pitching the oh, show wow. when we were rehearsing, you know, and he wouldn't, and so we ended up, and I was recording it, because I, you know, said to him, I'm going to write poems about this, maybe a play. So I have a recording of this fight we had, and it's really all about his anxiety, you know, that, that people were going to find his his story too dark, mm-hmm. uh, too serious, you know, he's always trying to make it funnier or like make it sexy or something. And I, and I kept saying to him, look, even if they don't buy the show, which they probably won't, right. you know, statistically speaking, sure. it'll be an interesting meeting for these executives probably. Because how often do they meet a 55-year-old Pulitzer Prize winning war reporter? Yeah. Um, and uh, and it was, you know, they were they were really interesting meetings. And, a lot, and I think, you know, it's sort of got... and and. We, you know, it could still turn into something. Partly, I think Paul felt a little disappointed that it didn't immediately turn into something, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of. But that's not only the the subject of the new collection of poetry, but it's um, that's the uh, I'm adapting that as a play. Oh, you are. Yeah, as because I have a Guggenheim Fellowship this year, uh-huh. so, and that's that was that is the play that I'm supposed to write as oh, part nice. of the fellowship. Yeah, so, I mean, it's still turning into something. Do you um, ever tire of the subject matter? I haven't yet. I mean, the this collection of poetry, New Life, and this play, you know, structurally, it is about me moving on from Paul. Mm. And it is about Paul moving on from war reporting. Mm-hmm. You know, by the end of the collection, there are poems about, and this, again, for me, is spooky serendipity. By the time I'm finishing the collection, he was retiring. Yeah, and get, and given up on war reporting and moving on to something else, um, which is now he's writing a, a couple books that are not explicitly about war. He's writing a, a nonfiction book about polar exploration, and uh, so I do feel like I'm moving on. Mm. That said, now I'm writing a new play, but it is a play <laughs> that's dealing with that question of how to right. move on from it, and and I think in a larger sense, like how you know how do you because on one level, like a big point of the body of an American is guilt or an interest in paying attention to things that many of us don't want to pay attention to. Right. You know, um, at the same time, I feel like this next play is sort of, well, but can you, isn't there more to life than that? Like, can you spend, should you spend your life being a war reporter in Paul's case? Should you should I spend my life just writing, quote unquote, war poetry? Or right. Plays is the about, flip side of that? Is there any desire on your part to have been a witness directly to these things, to have experienced mm-hmm. them directly? Yeah, I still feel um, conflicted about that because 
working with Paul for uh, certainly for the first few years was probably that fantasy of like maybe I could become a war reporter or something uh-huh. you know um, and and maybe I should do you know what I mean like part it's of not that too is late. yeah I know <laughs> um, and uh, so yeah I'm still open to that I mean it's because I, 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 we were planning a trip to Afghanistan actually when uh, first a good friend of mine got leukemia and died and oh, then oh no it's okay and then my wife got pregnant mm. so and then Paul stopped going to Afghanistan so like it kind of also just didn't work out but I was just talking I was visiting a class at primary stages and there was a, a woman who had served in the Israeli army who was um, uh, claims that she has you know PTSD who was very upset by a comment I made because I was saying how you know um, how I haven't gone I didn't go to Afghanistan mm-hmm. and maybe never will and sort of maybe accepting that everybody not everybody has to be a war reporter do you know what I mean but mm-hmm. I could still write differently mm-hmm. and write things that are more socially engaged or culturally yeah. engaged or politically engaged and that everybody does what they can do or something and for some reason that really pushed her button which was kind of fascinating to me and also disturbing to me because it's, it's it's an open question it's an open question for me I've got friends who have gone further down that road uh, non-fiction writers um, a younger writer younger than me Jen Percy, uh, who's, you know, she's written amazing stories about ISIS. And, you know, five years ago, she was just like another person out of Middlebury College Mm -hmm. in Columbia or wherever she went, you know. Um, So I really, no, I I, I really admire that. But it's, um, I don't, I mean, it's in the play. It's in, you know, the, the Dan and Paul character argue about that. It's like, should everybody be a war reporter? You know, is that the way, you know... Are we all doing our part to end war? Is right. that the question? I get, exactly. I think I think that's probably a more practical question. And, and also even, does it have to be sort of obvious war? You know, could it be, you know, issues surrounding race or poverty. gender and poverty? Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. So isn't it more about sort of, um, you know, turning towards your own and others' traumas and trying to address them, whatever they are, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, was what I, how I always conceived of writing. For me, it was just more uh, domestic, mm-hmm. the more domestic sphere of, of trauma about families and, and children. And, and now, because of working with Paul, I, I do feel much more interested in writing about um, all kinds of, of trauma that are not necessarily as personal, but not necessarily just about warfare, you know? We've been talking a while. I have a yeah. million. Is it okay? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I, I want to ask this one because sure. um, maybe I'll even cut it off the end of the interview because I just um, I don't know it's going on too long probably. But um, the first time I actually saw your work was um, facing our truth. Oh right. The six mm-hmm. plays about Trayvon, right? Race and privilege. Mm-hmm. And I think that what you just said raises a very interesting question in that context, which is, um, as a white man, mm-hmm. um, how did you get involved in that project? And did you have any reservations about being a white man and writing a play in that context? It doesn't always go well, right? Yeah. When white people start commenting on race and privilege. Yeah, sure. And I, I've, as a younger writer, I certainly wrote things where I tried to 
you know, deal with or write about, you know, issues, I, I, I guess you'd say issues of race, and it didn't go well in terms mm-hmm. of people's response, and also in terms of probably the way I did it. Right. You know, so I, I'm well aware of how, um, how high the stakes are, you know. At the same time with this, with that project, I didn't, for whatever reason, I didn't feel... Yeah, I didn't feel scared by it. And again, it could be because I'd been working with Paul mm-hmm. for years by then and how it was starting to change me as a writer. And, um, you know, I, I felt... And again, also wanting to use primary source material a lot, mm-hmm. uh, even though it ended up being a kind of musical. You know, I did try to use a lot of the language and the events of what happened as opposed to... Um, you know, in, in many ways, I feel like working with Paul Watson, I've started to write a bit more like a journalist, mm. even though I'm still writing poems and plays, just in terms of trying to work with, with other people's stories that they're, that they're giving, you know, or, or in the case of <laughs> George Zimmerman, maybe he's not giving, but it's in the public record, you know. Sure. Um, no, it felt really important. I mean, it felt, it felt very... Absolutely. I, you know, and I was fascinated by, and still am, by... Uh, actually, the complexities of George Zimmerman. I mean, I, I think it's clear he's a psychopath and a terrible person. But the complexities of his identity, mm-hmm. I thought, was interesting because, of course, for many people, it just became like he's a, a white guy or something, and it, it's, he's actually much more a, comp, a complicated figure. It, but it, and, it, and it, it was not at all, in my opinion, any sort of sympathetic um, look at him. Um, you know, I think it's, I meant it, I felt it to be, of course, very condemning of who he was and and maybe trying to explore some of the factors psychologically or socially that may have contributed to who he is, you mm-hmm. know, who he was. No, and I, and I just got involved. I think somebody just suggested me, you know, somebody who knew of what I was writing about Paul Watson and just felt like, uh, uh, you know, I'd be an interesting choice no I, I was excited by it I mean but it is yeah it's explosive stuff in a lot of ways because it's um but I love that because again that's what I mean you know I hate sort of writing advice but um when I was a younger writer I taught with Romulus Linney who would always say write towards danger hmm. you know and people say all kinds of versions of that idea but I love that idea that if something is um you should be writing about the thing that's the most terrifying to you at any given moment. You know, you can still be writing a comedy. You can still, you know, but it it uh, that's true for me. So if I recognize that something is is um, scary or intimidating, that's actually what I want to write. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was I guess kind of scary, but but again, it was I, it just felt like such an opportunity to to try to again use your art to engage with something real yes and not solipsistic or subjective or you know yep which is what's interesting to me right now well that's a great way to end okay good thank you a good piece of writing advice advice to wrap things up (laughs) thank you for letting me we can all try to take that to heart yeah thank you no thank you this is fantastic yeah i hope i didn't go on too long i mean no it was wonderful Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Maximus Theater and Performance Podcast. Next week, we will preview what we're looking forward to at the theater in March in New York City. See you next week.